Good morning, good afternoon, or and or and good or. evening, and or good evening. Um, you, if in case you don't know where you are, this is the Silmarillion Film Project. So if you're here on purpose, that's great. If you're here by accident, that's okay too. <laughs> this is Trish Lambert introducing for Dave Kale, who I we are happy to say has is now a father the second time he that's has a right. halloween he's, baby matilda jane kale matilda jane kale yes he's absent for the best of reasons the uh the successful birth of his healthy second child so uh, uh mom and baby and big brother and and i think dad are all apparently doing well so apparently uh, fine yeah yeah that's uh very exciting news so we we will hope to be rejoined by him uh, maybe not until uh, the December, the first uh, December episode, <laughs> but he's still, they're still coping right? with the whole multiple child household thing right now, which I right. totally get. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, no, that's uh, so this is the, this Very is the most exciting. exciting reason to not have Dave with us here tonight. That's right. But we do have Corey Olson, the Tolkien professor and me, Trish Lambert and our script writing team. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yes, we have Rihanna and Marie and Nick with us tonight. So, uh, awesome. Howdy. Yeah, welcome. Welcome, everybody. Um, Good. So before we get uh, jumping back into our script discussions, I was really excited about uh, about today's uh, about today's scripts. I I was uh, I was I was moved. I was moved at several points. there were various, the various feelings. There were various feelings that were moved within me at various points, <laughs> but I was definitely moved at certain places. Um, but uh, but anyway, just uh, before we get in uh, too far, just some quick announcements. The 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 uh, one the biggest announcement uh, is just uh, uh, Baymoot. So Baymoot is coming up are out in Berkeley, California. Um, we're going to have our mood out there on November, uh, Saturday, November 23rd, and the registration is up. Uh, so if you go to the Baymoot page, you can find that. Actually, let me uh, let me show you. Where is it? This. Here it is. So here's the Signum homepage. Um, I, sh- I say show it. I should probably actually do that for those who are in webinar. How about that? Okay, there we go. I know the folks on Twitch can see it. Um, uh, so just a, a few things here. If you go to signumuniversity.org and scroll down, you see all the exciting current things. Uh, we're coming to the end. Tomorrow is the last day to take advantage of our uh, our special on folkloric transformations, course by Demetra Femi on uh, uh, things like vampires and stuff and their their transformation from traditional folklore through to modern films and things. It's a really, really fascinating course. Um uh, so we're doing our special, which ends tomorrow. So if you uh, want to get in on that, you should get in on that right away. We've got, of course, our spring courses, including uh, uh, our brand new course on classical myths and legends. We've done a lot with Germanic stuff, of course, Germanic myths and uh, and and our, our, our old Norse stuff that uh, that we you know our sagas class and everything. Um, uh, and, and so in this class, we're going into the Greco-Roman tradition. Uh, and looking at uh, some of those original writings. So that class is, uh, all the works will be uh, taught in translation in that class. So um, I have the opportunity to uh, uh, to audit this one live and participate in the lectures as they as they go on and everything. So uh, a really fun, a really fun semester there. And then um, 
upcoming events, we've got This Is Where, of course, you can click on through to our Baymoot page and uh, find the registration button. There's also, this is a special session that's happening just this coming Tuesday um, at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, um, uh, a discussion on Narnia and friendship. This is a part of an ongoing course, one of our fall courses. No, it's not fall. Right. Yes, it is fall. Okay, it is fall right now. I forget what season I'm in. Uh, in, the, in one of our ongoing fall courses um, uh, by Bretton Dickinson, The Mythology of Love and Sex, looking at uh, C.S. Lewis and his take on uh, love and uh, and uh, and sort of uh, C.S. Lewis's The Four Loves is kind of at the heart of that course and looking at a bunch of Lewis's fiction and um and so this is going to be a discussion on friendship and Narnia, and this is going to be with Brenton Dickinson and with Diana Glyer, who is, uh, of course, the author of The Company They Keep and of Bandersnatch, wonderful uh, uh, C.S. Lewis scholar, who's going to be joining uh, Brenton. And so this is just going to be basically a, a, a publicly open um, class session uh, for that uh, for that discussion. So uh, everyone is encouraged to join there. And again, you can get to the registration link uh, through this page here on our homepage. So... Anyway, those are some of the things that are coming up soon. One film film thing that I wanted to mention um, is, of course, as we're getting towards, uh, we're in now our our, our post production period. Um, I want to draw people's attention to the casting call. Um, we have a, a few suggestions, but would love more suggestions. Uh, we've got a couple pretty big names that need to be cast, uh, including, of course, Gandalf and Glorfindel, uh, who both uh, need to be cast here. So uh, nominations and suggestions for uh, for actors who could play those roles, not only those two, of course, but all the other new characters that were, uh, that were casting this time. Uh, would be would be really great. So I encourage you, uh, I encourage you to go to the uh, discussion boards. Uh, and Marie, can you tell us where 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 people can find that if they when they go in? Uh, sure. So there's a casting form, and the subforms for that are by season. So they would go to the season board nominations okay. subform. So casting season four nominations. Okay, great. Yep. Excellent. Very good. Okay. So, uh, this is uh, th- these are the uh, the instructions for how you can find uh, the scripts uh, to look over them yourself. I highly recommend them; they are excellent reading. Um, and uh, again, go to the Film Film Project, uh, click on script, and then season four, and then scripts and script outlines for season four, uh, in order to be able to uh, to find these. So we're gonna start with episode six. We talked a little bit. Uh, about episode six at the end of our last session, but we want to go through it a little bit more, uh, a little bit more systematically. So um, we've got, I'll just read the initial synopsis and then I'll let you guys, uh, the writing team kind of talk our way through it act by act. And I'll, I'll kind of give some, uh, some input and bring up some things that I was really struck by uh, as we go through. So, this, in this episode, Sauron and Thorin Grethel try to ferret out the secret of the kinslaying to drive a wedge between the Sindar and the Noldor. Círdan learns who burnt the ships at Lothgar, and Ethelos and Angrod experience captivity in Angband. Uh, so we have our first uh, major capture um, uh, by Sauron and his team. Okay, um, so uh, so Act One. Tell me, uh, tell me some things about. Uh, act one of this episode, things that were going on, things that you guys were wanting to emphasize, challenges that you guys were uh, were sort of confronting uh, in those in those uh, scenes. 
So, uh, so this is the first episode after the marathoner thought. After the marathoner, so we're trying to, yeah. 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 So we're trying to follow up on that, and that was obviously a mostly a party atmosphere and fairly positive with some dark undertones. Mm-hmm. So this one starts out on a lighter note and then focuses more on that darkness. Right. Right. And um, so this being that kind of continuation. We got to see Thurungwethel in like full on secret agent mode. Yes. Right. So we saw her doing kind of like silent and invisible surveillance. Mm-hmm. Uh, we saw her at the at the party with um, with Sauron doing some sort of espionage slash sabotage. In this one, she's really all on her own. And one of the things that was really a challenge was to find a way to get the audience worried for her safety. You know, like right. anytime that I can get the the audience like on the villain side even a little <laughs> bit is right. is always a win. Right. Right. Um, yeah, there were there were some kind of tense moments, you know, when uh with with throwing Grethel on the ship. Um, that was interesting. Um, on the other hand, go on, go on. So one thing I'd like to bring up just because I thought this was really funny is we were, we spent a while in our script discussion talking about what should Sauron and Thurn Bethel's disguise names be? And I was very much in favor of them just switching their names and having them, their names backwards. So Thurn Bethel would be like, lift the wings of (laughs) Right. And Sauron would be nor Ralph. Right. But I, I was upvoted, so I had to come up with a different name for Thurn Wethel, and Sauron didn't actually end up using a disguise name. But right. Thurn Wethel, I chose to call Willwilleth because it sort of has that same sound as Thurn Wethel, so it's not quite Thurn Wethel backwards, but it has that TH and that G sound in it. Yes. And it also means butterfly in Sindarin. Nice. So it's a vampire calling herself butterfly. Butterfly, right? Yeah, no, that's great. That's great. And uh, and yeah, I mean, of course, having them disguise themselves by giving their names backwards would have been an awesome Easter egg, right? For like fans of the Lay of Lathian. Um, but yeah, I think that would probably be a relatively small <laughs> percentage, even of our audience, uh, who would who would get the reference there. Uh, to uh, of course to to. to uh, to Baron and 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 Finrod uh, Felagun disguising their names that way, um, right? And while you can s- kind of sell the idea that an Elvish name backwards is an Orcish name, it's a little harder to sell the idea <laughs> yes. that those names backwards are, are Elvish. Yeah. Now, Nauros actually isn't that that yeah. bad, but not, uh, not really. But uh, Thoringwethel would have been. Not Nearly very elvish enough. at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, one of the other things. So, one of the difficulties in constructing a surprise in a television episode is you have to make the surprise kind of work on a second watching. Mm-hmm. Like, not that the audience is surprised anymore. Like they're right. like right. they know what's. Coming. Yeah, but we want them to be sitting there going. Oh, yeah. You know, you want them and you want the surprise to be possible. Yeah. So it was very important for Angrad and Edelas, for example, who are um, they're captured 
well, they appear to be captured by by Tavildo's cats on their way home from their son's wedding. It was very important that they be separated right. for a time. Right. Right. To give plausibility to the idea that Angrod may not be who he seems. However, the first time that you watch it, it doesn't even occur to you. No, and, it, and that I went think... absolutely <gasps> past me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was not even suspicious. Right, and I think the idea that Thurin, the fact that Thurin Wethel is off doing her secret agent routine actually works as kind of like a double blind in a way. Yes, yes. Because it, it draws attention away from this kind of sneaky, underhanded thing. Um, and when you see Adelas and Angrod, they, you know, they, you were seeing them actually building their relationship, which makes it even creepier. Yes. You know, that's it when, so on that second watching, people who have seen it before are watching going, ah, it's so <laughs> painful. Yeah. It's so, so painful. Yeah. I actually, I actually, you know, cause I had read episode six for last time, which we didn't quite finish discussing. Um, so I read it again before this, uh, before this session and yeah, like reading through it the second time. Oh man, those scenes in the cell, like those post torture scenes were so painful. That was so painful. Uh, you know, knowing the truth the second time. So yeah, I mean, I definitely felt that it worked that way. It, it obviously, as you say, it, it can't have the same effect a second time, but it still had a powerful, it wasn't just like, Oh, now I see through the trick, you know, like when right, you, right. when you know where the rabbit's coming from, you know, when it's pulled out of the hat, the trick isn't interesting anymore right, right. It, it 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 can't just be like that and, and it, it it definitely wasn't it definitely yeah. wasn't yeah and um so um to back to thurin wethel for a moment um an, another challenge there was to not let kirden catch on too quickly mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so you know we had to kind of give her excuses to kind of um, because obviously she has to appear as though she does not want to give up this information. Right, right. The original uh, plan had been for her to be Sindarin and to have to pretend to have come across this information. Right. right. Um, but in if she's Noldor, it a makes it more believable, mm-hmm. right? Like she doesn't mm-hmm. have to come up with a story for how she knows this. Right, right, right. Um. But also now she has to be reticent to give up this information or appear to be reticent to give up the information. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Well, I mean, in that, I mean, unless there are other things you guys want to say about act one, that kind of transitions into act two, um, that when Thorin, when Thorin Gwethel's character, uh, reveals the, the death of her husband on the hell Caraxa, um, that I thought was I mean again, especially contrasted with the fake Cinderin conspirator angle, right? That I thought was a really interesting. You know, if she if the first thing she confesses is her grief, right, um, uh, and and anger about the death of her husband, um, and so that would justify her kind of ranting about the sons of Feanor, right? Which is where she goes originally, you know, initially there. Um, and I think that that's um, uh, I, I think that that's a really interesting angle, not least, of course, because it serves as a foil to Goadriel and Celeborn, right? I mean, she's 
not it's not the same as Galadriel's issues, right? But it's kind of similar, like a, a you know Noldor woman grieving over losses on the you know trauma and losses experienced on on the way, and you know finally opens up to you know. Uh, a trustworthy Sindar gentleman, right, who is there and sympathetically listening, right? It's it's kind of an interesting parallel, um, well, sort of anti-parallel, right, in in some ways. But I, that I thought was really kind of a fun touch. Well, the closest parallel I was really trying to make with Thuringwethel is actually her being parallel to Turgon, and I even have absolutely. her at yeah. one point saying. Do not ask this of me because for me the grief is still too near, which is like the exact same line yes. that yes. Kirkin delivered to Kirden in episode four while Thurn Grethel was secretly spying on them. Right. right. So she's using that to her advantage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's great. And that 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 parallel was also was also clear. So yeah, it's I, I, I thought that the, that all came together uh in 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 really interesting ways. Um the yeah yeah um her also, um, her eagerness oh, to share is uh is again it's it's i know that's a really difficult line to walk right you know how she has to look real as you know nick as you were saying she has to look really reluctant uh and you know while of course being entirely eager to you know her whole objective is to say is to to say these things so that's um it's a tricky thing to do to to make that really believable. Uh, meanwhile, on the completely other side of Balerion, we have a subplot of the uh, the Noldor finally meeting the dwarves. And one of the reasons we kind of we did a little bit of moving around here. We we kind of did a little bit of a shell game with the dwarves here um, by introducing them at. Um, Carinthir's fortress, the name of which is escaping me at the moment. By introducing the Caliborn is the lake, so we just yeah. called it Caliborn. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. By introducing them there in this episode, it allows us to tell the story of the deal that they make in the next episode without having to like it, to lay too much groundwork. Mm-hmm. It also allowed us to um, to get at the to bring the ale story in. Yes ahead of time foreshadowing next season. Yeah. I was a little surprised at that. I wasn't expecting that. Um, yeah. When that, when that came out, I mean, I kind of liked it, especially mm-hmm. since it seemed to be kind of an interesting ice breaking thing, right? That like the fact that Carinthir and Telkar end up kind of having this, like, yeah, some of them Sindar just ain't right. <laughs> you know, kind of, kind of bonding yeah. moment. Right. Yeah. Um, which was, Karen which was interesting. takes away the entirely wrong message. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, but uh, but yeah, no. I actually, I mean, I, I I liked how that worked. I mean, I could see that there's a kind of risk being taken there in in not not in spoiling. I don't mean spoiling, but in in kind of doing the Aeol story indirectly here, so that when we come back to Aeol himself next season, primarily, you know, we'll already have. The, but I mean, I think we can follow that up in, in, in some interesting ways. We can, yeah, we can hear Ale's version of his story, which probably yes. won't be the same as Telcar's. Probably right. won't be the same. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And we can tell different details about the story. 
Yeah. You know, it, there are definitely details that we're leaving out of the story here that are going to come out later on. Um, but at the same time, we can kind of gloss over some of the basics next season that it, it, it's basically just kind of conserving our time a little mm-hmm. bit. Mm-hmm. And also we've kind of developed the situation where the way that dwarves deal with uncomfortable, uncomfortable topics with the elves is they tell a story about this time that was kind of like this and i'm not entirely certain where like if that has any basis in anything else right but it's a really interesting development that has come out over yeah. this season yeah i like that i mean i, I... Yeah, both, yeah both norn and telcar are taking this approach <laughs> yes yeah yeah no i think that's 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 cool i mean any any way that a you know a particular kind of idiosyncrasy or or, um, you know, kind of wrinkle of dwarf culture sort of emerges, you know, during the writing process. I think that's kind of fun. I don't see any reason why uh, why that kind of thing should be resisted. I think that's great. I really liked the meeting between Karanthir and Telkar. I, I was, um, uh, you know, at, at first I was a little bit, um, what? I don't know. I, trepidatious is a little too strong a word, but I was at first I was like, like what's going to happen here? Like, you know, I, I, I was I was having a hard time seeing when the first scene came. I'm like, where are we going exactly and how is this going to be linking in? I mean, I knew that we kind of needed to do it and it was kind of a an extra thing in some, you know, not hugely directly connected with all the rest of the plot and stuff. Um, but I loved the way that it came out. I mean, I, I really I thought that that was that whole sequence between this episode and the next episode uh, with Karanthir was like by far the like coolest character development of Karanthir we've done, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> which was cool. I mean, like, hey, he's not just a brainless thug. I mean, he's still yeah. is kind of a brainless thug, but you yeah. know, to see him to see him acting. I mean, the, like him he and Telkar laughing to together. Kind of hold his hand a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Kurofin has to help him on the in the brains department. But still, like, you know. The whole character is probably not a terrible carouser. Yeah, no, like, I think not. Like you, you could probably take him out on on the town and probably have a good time. Yeah, yeah. No, I, when the, the and Telkar are laughing we, together, I loved. I just loved that. Yeah, we, we had agreed at the beginning of the project that. Karanthir would have the least character development of any of the Sons of Feanor. He kind of starts out as a jerk. He kind of ends as a jerk. He doesn't (laughs) become more or less of a jerk throughout. He just is kind of consistently himself from his introduction until his death. So knowing that it would be easy to make him a caricature where it's like, we need someone to be angry and stupid. Hey, Karanthir, you need to be in the scene. (laughs) So this was an opportunity to have him be on screen and not being angry and stupid. He's still himself. He's not particularly good at the diplomacy thing. No, no, but... he's not. I mean, he calls them stunted people in like his first sentence. Um, like I... I said, not too good at diplomacy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. But I mean, I really kind of like the fact that Telkar like gave as good as she got as far as that was concerned, you know, Um and, uh, and yeah, no, it was, it was, um, it was, it was really, it was really kind of nice and shows also the, it, it was a good way to stress the sort of alien perspective of the dwarves, like how the, the dwarves, you know, have become allies with the Sindar, but it's not like they're like 
totally biased on the side of the Sindar or anything. You know, they're right. they they they're kind of official, even though they've had good relations with the Sindar, they're kind of outside the whole elf thing, right? Um, and you definitely feel that with them, and also the way, especially when the rest of them come in, I mean, the other sons, you know, the others of the sons of Fanor, um, uh, to the conversation in the next episode. Um, they, um, uh, the, the way that they, um, clearly the, the, the kind of connection between the dwarves and the Noldor, right. What they have in common and, and, and what they can sort of both appreciate was, you know, starting to come through as well, I think. So it was in the end, I definitely felt that that exchange, that this whole moment uh, there with Karanthir and Telkar was uh, was effective in building, especially in uh, not only character development and kind of seeing the Feanorian's world to some extent, um, but also, you know, more further development of the dwarves. I thought that was cool. Yeah. Um, another thing that I thought was really interesting is it's going to be a really interesting feeling for the dwarves to meet the Noldor after having met the Sindar. Mm-hmm. So when they make first contact with the Sindar, the Sindar appear to them to be like unwashed savages, right. essentially. Like right. they don't make anything out of metal. They don't have any permanent Homes. residences yeah, yeah, that they, they have, can really yeah. see. Yeah. Then they meet the Noldor and the Noldor are a very, very different yes. animal in a way. Yeah. You know, the first contact is with Carinthier. And like at first in this first meeting that's in this episode, Sure, they might think that the Noldor are kind of the same as the Sindar, but then Carinthir brings them to his place, and there's this stone building with, like, defensible, you know, yeah. ramparts and stuff like that, and they're like, oh, these guys are different. Yeah, we've yeah we, we've got stuff we can talk about with these guys. Right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes, this is worthwhile. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, it's cool. I I, I really like that. Um, uh, so Act Two was the like particularly heartbreaking moment when Angrod is trying to keep up Ethelos's spirit. Um, mm-hmm. Again, heartbreaking in retrospect. Um, yeah, second time. Through. And he tells her the sun still shines, or the sun doth still shine. The sun doth yeah. still shine. Yeah, the fact that that came from him originally. Oh man. Oh yeah. man. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I just so. I tend, if anything, to kind of dislike surprise for the sake of dis- of surprise. You know, yeah. the, like, you know, sudden turn and reveal, like, oh, the person you thought was a good guy is actually a bad guy all along, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. I, 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 I often am just annoyed by that kind of thing, but I yeah. felt it was really, really effective the way that you guys yeah. did this because yeah. of the way that it said when, when you see and when you. The way that the reveal causes you to reconsider everything through the episode before that, right? The way that you can yeah. see the really remarkably cunning and powerful way in which Sauron had been setting her up and undermining her hope and strength all the way through. Right. Yes. Is yes. so cool. A, a little bit at a time, right? Yeah. And, and also, we had to be a little careful uh, and this is one of the things, like, like subtly is, is so important, especially when you're dealing with a character like Sauron. Mm-hmm. It can't be too heavy-handed. Right. Like, he can't be too sappy. Yes. Yes. You know, because if he's too sappy, then 
the audience might start to get suspicious, like, okay, like, what's up here? Yeah. You know, what's coming? Um, It's one of those things where, you know, like, there's, there's the, there's like three layers, three levels of surprise. There's the level of surprise, which becomes not a surprise at all because you kind of like start to suspect that something's up right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um you know like if you saw for example spider-man far from home and you said wait this mysterio guy hmm anyway um then there's another layer of surprise where you when you look back you think to yourself oh like that's that was obviously him i should have guessed that right right you know where you're you're kind of like kicking yourself for yes. or, or yes. like there were clues but they weren't solid enough mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and then there's the surprise that just completely floors you and you're like wait, wait what you know you can't even wrap your head around it at first because it's so shocking um and i feel like that we were kind of going for somewhere between 2 and 3 here yeah. you know we wanted it to come as a complete surprise, but at the same time, we wanted to make it so that people, a person watching it the second time will kind of see, see what he's doing where like, like see what he's right. Right. You're watching him do it. Yeah. The second time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I just, I thought that was, uh, really, really well handled. I was, I was, uh, a huge fan of this episode. I still am a huge fan of this episode. Um, I just, I just, this was one of my favorites. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's, it's absolutely brilliant. Um, and the way, again, you know, you're absolutely right that the, um, the way that the Thorin Gwethel plot serves as like a distraction, you know, uh, so yeah. that you're, you know, because you think you've got a handle on, like you've got the subterfuge happening over here, and then you've got the the suffering prisoners over here, and you know you don't even. Um, it really it really emphasizes that. Um, okay, so one of the things that I was thinking about Act Three, what, uh, back to the Kierden and Thuring Grethel plot uh, for a second, um, his Kierden's reactions. Right. So his um, his kind of acceptance of the oath of Feanor, like, yeah, OK, that's probably not a good idea. But like, you know, it's understandable. I mean, it was I, I was kind of I found I, it was it was kind of amusing. Right. The moments where where she's like and then they swore this terrible oath. Oh, you know, I had sorry I have to admit that. And he's like. Yeah, well, you know, no big deal. Like, and it's like yeah. but at least their cause was just. And then she's like, "Well, no, actually, it, it really wasn't totally just." Well, also, he wasn't there, <laughs> right? You know, right. like he doesn't he doesn't know what. It, like, if he had been there, he like all the red flags were there, right? Right. Right. But just knowing that they swore an oath, it's like, okay, that's that's not great. Yeah, it's not the end of the world. Like, right. if that's the if that's your big news. I mean, it's eh, underwhelming. Like, I'm yeah, sorry yeah. that you're upset about your husband, but <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. People can't 
look at oaths as bad all the time because like Finrod will swear an oath knowing that oaths are kind of bad but not thinking it's the worst possible thing he could do. No, yeah. I mean, oaths are not evil intrinsically um, necessarily. I mean, it's it's like it can put you in an awkward position uh, but but it's not like, yeah, I mean, Finrod isn't doing wrong when he swears his oath to Barra here. Um, he does, again, paint himself into a corner later on but yeah. You know, but at the same time, I'm not even oh. sure. I mean, his oath binds. I mean, you think of Finrod's oath in particular. Had he not sworn the or sworn the oath to Barahir, like what would he have done? Just been like, sorry, Baron, buzz off. Like, I don't care. Right. I mean, there still would have been some kind of a of a like there's a certain kind of moral imperative to help Baron. Right. I mean, it, even if he hadn't sworn the oath. So, um so again, it's not like it's impelling him to do something horrible or, or anything. Right. So yeah, no, I absolutely agree. Oaths themselves don't have to be don't have to be evil. The terms of the oath of Thanor are really sketchy. Um, I think that the delivery of his lines will make a huge difference in yes. whether or not it comes off like he's being naive or whether he's like, okay, right, you know, I'm like being wise and patient, <laughs> and trying and right. trying to be understanding. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. You know, because like it looks kind of like she's got this axe to grind up against the Feanorians. And so she's describing it as a terrible oath. What does that actually mean though? Right. Right. Cause she's not like, she doesn't recite it to him. Right. You know, she doesn't know it. She, she, she know wasn't it. there. Exactly. Right. right. She can't right. recite it. He wasn't there. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. She, she tells Kieran that she saw Thanor wearing the Silmarils around right before Morgoth stole them. Yes. She wasn't there. She's just making that up. Totally making that up. Right. Which, right. Now I, she I, knows I, it happened because Morgoth was there. Right. Right. Exactly. But I loved that moment. Like that moment when, because the the audience knows that's not the case. Like, you know, care, careful viewers will remember that Feanor had ceased displaying the Silmarils a while before this. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, but yeah, yeah. But of course, uh, Kierden doesn't know. So that was actually a sort of a fun moment of dramatic irony. Now, the scene where he kind of like he locks her down, right? Yes. And um, we we had to be a little careful with a number of aspects of this of this episode because like plot elements from ro- romantic comedies kept like popping into. <laughs> It was a very weird situation because like, <laughs> things kept happening that were very romantic comedy when looked at from a certain lens. Right. And I was like, okay, well, like we can't have him like ask her down to, to like his quarters because that that's weird, you yes. know, like that. So having her like brought in and he's like se- seated at a table makes yep. it less that right? yeah that the, the, there was the the deaf and I mean even from your your sort of stage directions. There was clearly like an adversarial relationship there, rather right. than a like, "Hey, honey, come down to my so, private yeah. table this yeah. evening." <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, um, yeah. So, but once she's in that room, a few things happen um, because she can't get out without revealing herself. Yes, and yeah. if she reveals herself, it's it's over. Like her mission has failed because they're not going to believe anything she has to say, right? So while she probably could escape if she turned into if she revealed herself as a vampire and flew off, yeah, sure. And she is the arch vampire, so we don't really know what her power personal power level is. We've shown that the elves have been able to take out vampires before. Right. But we haven't established what her relative power level to them is. Yeah. Um 
presumably if he's got like eight Caliquendi on board and like he raises the alarm, she's probably toast. Yes. Unless she gets at the window before. Right. Yes. Right. So this was actually something I was a little bit unclear on. Um, Does she flee the ship? Uh, Yes. Yes. We see her like looking at the window, but. Okay. When um, when Kierden comes back and the room is empty and the window's open, okay, that okay, implies right. oh, yeah, yeah, what yeah. Okay, I missed that part of the that part. Right. Of, I must have I must have uh, uh, read past that in the montage. Right. So, but so here's my question. So that this was that that was this is the only element of this plot line that I had trouble with because okay. here's here's the question which seemed to me unanswered. How does Kierden interpret this? <clears throat> First of all, like how could she fit through that window? Um, and even if she could fit through that window, is Kierden speculating that she drowned herself? Well, yeah, we well we were we were talking about this and at, at length a lot about a lot of these similar <laughs> similar issues. Yeah. Uh, one thing that's important is the the window's got to be big enough that a human being could fit through it. Like right. that's right. That's got to be the case. Or else it would totally give away that she's a shapeshifter or something. Right. I mean, he right. would know something some sorcery right. was afoot if he. Um, yeah. Another thing is he doesn't really know exactly what the Caliquendi are capable of. Hmm. Um, he knows that they've fared much better against the orcs than the Sindar did. Yes. Yeah. Like they, they know that, um, that the initial confrontations with the orcs, the Nolnar had almost no casualties whatsoever. Uh, whereas the Sindar had a much tougher fight of it, right. you know, in the, right. in the, the battle under the stars. Uh, the first battle under the yeah, Star yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so he also it's... knows that the Noldor can swim because they swim at the Marathatathad. Right, right. So right. She, she could have. Kirtan might have interpreted as she jumped out the window and swam away. It's it's also okay. they're they're about to they're like right near Eglarest at this point. So they're like inside uh, of land when this happens. Land and gone away. Okay, okay. Yeah. Um. Is there a reason that she can't then like disembark like normal? Um, the reason is because then she'll be in the city and there'll be more eyes on her. It'll be tougher for her to, to pull that off. But if she's got to just vanish sooner or later, wouldn't it be easy to vanish? I mean, like, yeah, he'd look around for her and be like, hey, where'd she go? Like, but I mean, that's less dramatic then like yeah. she was locked in this room and now she's gone. She must have swum <laughs> across the ocean. Like that's yeah. way more suspicious than, I mean, yeah, that's fair. Than just where did she come? You know, where did she go? My, my, my fear is the weird. She went for the dramatic. Yeah. Oh, sorry. She went for the dramatic exit because she needed to get back to Angband quickly and her task was done. So she didn't, really care what Kierden thought afterwards. Right. Right. But the but problem also is that he was in the middle of the eclipse, so it seems like a prime moment yeah. for her to fly off to. Yeah. She so, and uh, Saren might have arranged this as a signal or something. This might have been her time to go back. Her time to go back, yeah. Um it's just my my fear is my fear is the weirder her departure looks to yeah. Kierden. The it's explicitly said, you know, I think in the beginning of episode seven, right? Mm-hmm. 
that he he could tell that there is malice behind these rumors, but he assumed that it was the I mean, I you know, that's ad- adapted straight from the line from the text. Right. About right. assuming that the malice was the malice of the, the sons of Fanor. Um, uh, but. You know, again, like within that circumstance, I'm like, Kierden didn't even ask himself the question like, gosh, could there have been some kind of like, might this have been an agent of the enemy? I mean, like mm. with the sudden, strange, very unusual disappearance, it kind of yeah. seemed to me like that's got to at least cross his mind as an option. Right. Whereas, again, well, if she just vanishes in the city, it's fine. now I like the timing of the. Of the of the eclipse, and I don't think we need to add like a landing scene and saying farewell on the key and all that kind of thing. Um, but um, I, yeah, I I can tell you it does reduce the tension a little bit for like it's it's not as tense. Her departure is not as as, as critical if we put her on land to do it. Um, what if we were a bit more explicit, like they're within swimming distance of of the dock, like they're not far enough away for it to be unreasonable for for a for a decently healthy and fit person to make it there? But even if it's well, it, sorry, go ahead, Rihanna. Well, you know what else we could do is. Uh, one of the things I was trying to sort of bring up, I didn't make it super clear, was that Kierden was going to, like, keep her with him and guarded from the other Noldor because she didn't want the other... Yeah, yeah, yeah. ...the Noldor to find out. That was sort of her cover story. She's like, oh, no, they will see it in my eyes that I have right, revealed right. the secret. So Kierden, right. like, she's asked Kierden to protect her from them. And so Kierden is like, yes, I'll protect you from them by, like, keeping you locked up and away from them. So he could be saying something about... Maybe there's like a room on the ship that doesn't have any windows that she could escape from. So she's like, this is my chance to escape now. I may not have another chance. Yeah. I need to move. Right. Yeah. She doesn't know exactly what, like what this, her circumstances are going to be in the future. So I mean, so uh, I, I realized that I, I, we, we knew at the time that we were playing it, that there, we'd have to be very, very careful about this yeah. in order to pull it off. Is there a way in which, the circumstances could be manipulated just a little bit so that it looks at least a plausible interpretation that one of the old, the other Noldor offed Or maybe helped her escape. Like he, right, he, he or might... something. Yeah, like basically yeah. If, if he can come away from, if, if, if there's a good reason for Kierden to respond to her sudden disappearance with added suspicion against the Noldor, right? Either... Look, they're 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 conspiring together, or like, oh, so she spilled the beans and gave away the truth, and they what? They like they they killed her, like they like shoved her out I, the I window and drowned that. her, you know? He hasn't he hasn't arrived at kinslaying yet, right? So he right. probably wouldn't think that they killed her, but definitely that they helped her escape or something. But he could, in retrospect, he could be puzzled by it, and then when he and Thingol arrive at the kinslaying thing, um, he could be, you know, he could say something like, well, you know, perhaps this sheds light on what happened to, you know, the poor Noldor vanished <laughs> from the, you know, like maybe she could, you know, how, one of the Fanorians caught up with her and she swims with the fishes now, you know, like it's... How would we indicate, like, uh, like other than like blood on the floor, I'm not sure how we... 
because like framing her own like framing her own death is would be kind of a a, a cool departure technique for Thorin yeah. Gledel. Like her garment or something, because the bats don't wear dresses. She could leave the dress that she was wearing. Yeah, or at least even well. just to like tear it or something, so it looks like there was mm-hmm. she was you know shoved out the window by an act of violence or something. I don't know. I mean, I. Uh, if yeah. she were to, well, first, I mean, first thing, she'd have to bleed for this to work. But if she were to cut herself with a knife and leave the knife, you yeah. know, like it, it definitely lends plausibility that like something went down. There. She got stabbed and, and her corpse thrust out the window. Yeah. Or, yeah. or she was trying to defend herself. Yeah. Like, it, you know. And so if basically, so this could be accomplished then with no other change to the plot apart from what Kirden finds when he gets back in. So imagine he, in the montage thing, right? We show him returning to his cabin, right? Mm-hmm. So if yes. if on his way back to his cabin, all he has to do is like a couple of the Noldor who are on board have to be walking away from the cabin in the other direction when he's walking towards it, right? Mm-hmm. Which can be totally innocent, but like, you know, so he sees a bunch of the Noldor. And especially if we set this up in that scene that you guys had earlier on where... Thorin Gwethel's all like, oh, like, I'm afraid of the other Noldor, like, protect yeah, me yeah. from them, right? If we can show her, like, looking out at, like, these Noldor who are standing, you know, not too far away, um, yeah. and then he if sees it's the those, same ones, yeah. Yes, he sees those same ones w- moving away from the door, and then he comes in, and he sees, you know, signs of, of, of you know, signs of violence. Of struggle. And, and, and yeah. you know, and, the, you know, so for, for her to fake her own death would seem... A, a cooler exit strategy yeah, because it would like fit it. better with her story. And, and um, like she, we can actually, at, when he leaves, we can see her pick up the knife so that we, like, we know what she did. Yeah. Like, so yeah. it's not too, like, cause otherwise it's like, like you have the audience trying to piece together what just happened and it's too quick to really do right. that. We don't right. want to be spending enough time for the audience to kind exactly. of exactly. Exactly. No, that I out. think that could be done really without adding any time at all. Just a couple other, just a couple yeah. other scenes, you know, a couple other things that we'd have to see uh, during yeah. that. Um, yeah. And and it's it's kind of a more devious strategy on her part too, because now instead of being, you know, him being like, okay, so I was told this by this Noldor lady who seemed kind of nice, but then she like totally vanished and it was a little bit weird and I'm not sure. Um, Now instead he would be like, oh, like the poor martyred Noldor who, you know, it's going to, it's going to make what she told him much, much more um, believable. And of course his suspicion against the Noldor would be uh, much more sharp. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, cool. I like that. I think that's a, I think that's an efficient solution uh, to that, to that issue. But yeah, that was the only, that was the only like scene that I wanted to develop a little bit more. Mm-hmm. I just, yeah. I can't think of any improvements on the Sauron Angrod thing. I yeah. mean, that was fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Like his, his legs clearly broken oh, and then he yeah, just the broken gets up, leg walks thing, away. Then, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, it was, just awesome from beginning to end. That was uh, that was really that was really fantastic. And the eclipse, oh, like I got chills. I got chills with like the whole the sun doth still shine thing, and then yeah. the eclipse comes at the end. I was like, yeah. oh, oh man, it's horrible. Yeah. So Wait, this horrible. Is, welcome to the Cimmerillion, everybody. Yeah. Oh, oh, that was just so like the the the. The the gut punch of the end of that episode was just incredible. Well, I feel like this is the first time in a long time that the villains have the upper hand. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. um, th- like they they really are on their back foot from from the arrival most of, of, of Feanor, through, right? Yeah, most well, not even even before that. Like it, through right. most of of season three, they're on their back foot. Yeah, um, yeah. they get a little bit of traction in South of Beleriand. It, um, mm-hmm. Once, mm-hmm. once uh, with Childa Sauron, yeah. yeah, yeah, start getting involved, but um, but they really like they're they're playing defense through most yeah. of that. Yeah, um, and this is the first time that we see them really, really get a victory out of um, out of their conflict with the the elves. Yeah, yeah. Um... Yeah, yeah, no, and I mean, just this is, even thinking about this from another angle, this is one of my favorite moments of Sauron character development that we've gotten yet. I mean... Yeah, this uh, is Sauron. Yeah, this is Sauron. You know, this is, uh, uh, you know... To this see... is what he did to Gorlin later. Yes. But, yeah. Absolutely. Almost worse, in a way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because, like... He just Gorlum just saw his wife from a distance. Like he was right there with her. And when he leaves her, like she doesn't know that it's not Angrod. She doesn't know it's not her husband. Because she doesn't change until after he's out of the cell. I love that. I love that. Yes. Yes, he gets up and closes the door, and then we, the audience, see him be- change back into Myron uh, in the yeah. hall. But yeah, yeah, no, that was. Uh, if if this were Game of Thrones, that would be the final scene of the episode. But yeah. this is not Game of Thrones. This so. is not Game of Thrones, and but and I love the final the final scene of the episode is is Morgoth and and the Eclipse and being worshipped yeah. out in Hildorian. Fantastic! I loved that. I mean, that was such a powerful last uh, moment there. Yeah. Yeah, that excellent. was that was a little tough because like we like we're playing a little fast and loose with time there. But yeah, I, yeah, I feel like it's OK, especially if like you're doing kind of like a mid credits teaser thing. Right. It's not that big a deal. Right. Yep. Yep. Agreed. Anything else on uh, six before we No, Let's go ahead and go to seven because we're, we're moving slowish, but that's OK. Yes. Yeah. Um, okay, so uh, the king's ire. By the way, a little sub note here. I lo- the great work on the. Uh, I think it's really consistently good work on the episode titles. I thought I loved the way that they. I mean, the sun doth, doth still shine was was you know really top shelf. But uh, um, uh, the you know the way that this connected tied the frame and the uh, and the the main episode together and. Um, even even with the ale plot and stuff, I mean, it was and 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 Aaron Ruth, right? I mean, it was it was it was it was cool. I I, I, I really like this one too. Yeah, it, episodes six and seven are, are definitely a set. Yeah, there's yeah. been a few episodes like that over the uh, over the course of the the series, but I I really feel like these these two, like the episodes where um, Morgoth is trying to um, to turn. Um, some of the Maiar onto his side back from season one. Those, like those three episodes, nine, ten, and eleven, I think they are really kind of go together very, very well. And I think these two are kind of like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so episode seven, right? So your synopsis is Thingol, learning of the ship of the ship burning, confronts Angrod and Finrod, who tell him the truth of the kinslaying. Karanthir establishes a trading relationship with the dwarves. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um. 
okay, so we start with so for, I, first of all, I, I I know I'm gonna forget to talk about the frame. Um, episode six was the frame in which the moon letters come out, and it ends yes. with Bilbo's discomfort. Yes. Right. Yes. With with Gandalf <laughs> lying. Gandalf lying. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but if yeah. like there's a number of things that happen in the Hobbit, which kind of suggests that Gandalf is not being entirely honest. With him. Oh, like, yeah. I don't yeah. buy for a second that Gandalf can't read the runes on the swords and figure out <laughs> whose swords they have. Like, it's pretty obvious that he wanted to give Elrond the chance to be like, okay, so these are mine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Without having to explain that to Thorin up front. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, I agree. And I mean, even the one, was it Balin who kind of called him on that as far as like lying about Bilbo being a burglar, <laughs> right? Yes. I mean, yes. you know, Gandalf's improvisation about, you know, his, uh, his trying to pawn off Bilbo as burglar initially. That was, you know, yeah, that, I mean, that was kind yeah. of, that was kind of funny. And of course, especially in the context of um, your, your recollection of the honest burglar title uh, and then. Yes. Uh, moving forward to uh, uh, Bil- Bilbo's surfeit of honesty uh, in, yes. uh, in 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 this episode, and then Gandalf's rebuke for him being too honest a burglar after all. Um, yes, uh, I, I I thought that that worked uh, that that worked really well. Um, the um, so so basically, just to kind of in case anybody either doesn't remember or, or yeah, you yeah know, please do give us the synopsis there. So basically, um, in episode six, Gandalf takes Bilbo up to like this observatory tower to like go over this really ancient document that's like super secure. It's got moon letters on it that'll it's only appear on Durin's day, <laughs> yes. uh, which we discuss we we discussed uh, over this past week that y- you actually can't have a lunar eclipse on Durin's day because <laughs> right. that that's not how it works. It's not how so it works. we. We we had talked originally talked about having like a partial solar eclipse, but a right. partial one to differentiate from the other. Anyway, but and it, it's fixed now, so it doesn't right, yeah, right, yeah. right. Um, more importantly, though, they um, they find out that the reason that the that the original conflict between the elves of Mirkwood and the dwarves of Erebor came about was because Orifer had hired them to build these gates for his um his underground you know lair city place and the gates had spells on them that were in quenya now of course orfer was still enforcing the ban right so he was like no that's i'm not having quenya words on my gates that's not a thing that's going to happen um and he didn't feel like it was fair that he should pay the entire price for only part of the work. Now, of course, the dwarves took umbrage at this because you agreed to pay this price. It's not our fault that you don't want all of the work done. This is like it's a package deal. Like this is the job. Right. And that's kind of laid out on this document. And Bilbo's like, well, we're going to have to tell Dane about this, obviously. And Gandalf's like, well, do we? Right, because we idea. don't like it's not necessary to reveal this information. We could just tell them the things he needs to know without telling him about this part, because there's some really unpleasant things that are going to follow. Right. Um, so in this episode, 
um, Bilbo and Balin are kind of in their cups, and <laughs> Balin's going on and on and on about how trustworthy Bilbo is and how you know, <laughs> yeah. heaping, and heaping coals of fire on Bilbo's head during the right. whole conversation. And, you know, he's got this, this transcription of this document burning a hole in his pocket. Yeah, yeah. So finally, he gives he gives Balin the transcription of the document and Balin immediately sobers up and is like, I need to get this to Dane right away. Right, right. And of course, Dane uses that information, confronts Thingle, who Thingle now... Not Thingle. Not Thingle. Wow. You know who I meant. <laughs> yeah. Summer Thingle. Thingle. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Thingle in, in, in spirit. Thingle light. Uh, Thranduil. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yes. <laughs> Um, so Thranduil gets confronted with this and Thranduil's response is to basically take Dane, like restrain him to prevent the rather large force of armed dwarves from storming the, whatever place they are, the hall that they're, yeah, that they're staying in. And they kind of like take over the town hall leaving Bard out in the cold somehow, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I felt so bad for Bard during We kind of yada yada that Gandalf emphasizes bit. that. Right? Like, here's Bard, yeah. minding his own business, trying right. to help everybody. And I love that Gandalf wakes Bilbo up in the middle of the night for this conversation. Yes. That's fantastic. I don't think that we had anything. I think that was all Rhiannon. Uh, <laughs> Rhiannon's doing it, and I, I really like it. Well, yeah. No, we, we talked about him going in and waking him up, and, uh, and we were like, if Bilbo was a took, he would call him fool of a took. But Bilbo <laughs> isn't a took, so what is he going to call him instead? I remember Hold this on. conversation now. Blabbering Baggins! <laughs> yes. Blabbering Baggins, yes. Blabbering this is perfect. Baggins. So, um, so in the end, Bilbo has to kind of like talk Balin out of rescuing Dane um, and gets the dwarves to stand down, which causes Thranduil, who's not Thingol, to I almost did it again to relax a, uh, just enough to for Gandalf to extricate Dane from their clutches mm-hmm. and uh, Dane goes back into the mountain. Yeah, um, so I I loved the um, so first of all I mean one of the things that's super cool about this plot line is that notice that it puts Gandalf in really uncomfortable company right um, in his decision to say oh let's just not tell dan about this and keep this to ourselves he's being like the fanorians right he's being you know he's he's recapitulating um in parallel the decision that the noldor made to hide the stuff from thingol in the first place uh and then in his confrontation with bilbo uh he's like i mean he doesn't call him descendant of rats but he's like thorin at the gate right yes Um, yes so you know it, it's and so both of those moments that's kind of uncomfortable, right? But well, Bilbo did kind of meddle in the affairs of wizards. He did, he did absolutely, and yet like he's not wrong either, right? I mean, Bilbo yes. isn't wrong. Uh, so yeah. it's I mean I I I really like that. I mean because it, it's not Gandalf is because I I feel like that's done without making that is Gandalf is put into these uncomfortable parallels um, right. without making him look dumb. And without right. making him, uh, you know, seem a fool or to seem wicked or anything. And yet, and, right. And see. Gandalf, we trust Gandalf. So, like, we know that he came, like, we know he was coming at this from a good place. Right. 
you know. And yet, we, we, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, exactly. So no, I, I I thought that was great. You know, it was, um, and especially since there's, you know, I think there's a temptation. I mean, goodness, I think you can see this temptation in Tolkien really clearly, especially in the essay on the Astari that's in Unfinished Tales, to like make Gandalf into like the idol. You know, uh, yeah. like Gandalf is the one Astari who does nothing wrong ever. You know, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, he was he got kind of he Tolkien. I mean, got kind of like hero worship of Gandalf. Uh, right. You know. I mean, afterwards. let's be fair. Gandalf is the guy who thought it was a great idea to send a Hobbit in to a dragon slayer. Like, which in that's... his defense, it kind of was in the end. Yes. Right. But, but Gandalf yeah. also didn't know he was going to come across the One Ring <laughs> exactly. either. Exactly. So... Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I, again, I, I I love it, but that's why I said I I, th- I thought that it was it was it was interesting and kind of bold, right? Because I think yeah. that following Tolkien, you know, people who love Tolkien, people who love the Lord of the Rings, tend to have that mm-hmm. kind of hero worship for Gandalf, you know. Um, so seeing Gandalf, you know, being confronted with the the uncomfortable fact that Gandalf yeah. is following in. You know the Feanorians and Crazy yeah. Thorin's footsteps here to some extent is is good. That's healthy. I I, I I like it a lot. I mean, the thing is, like at this point, I think I've read the Lord of the Rings too many times to not see when Gandalf is not being honest with right. people. Right. Like yeah. he does it all the time, and like it's clearly okay for him to be doing this. Like he's clearly trying doing a good thing, but like okay, there's like. Why on earth, like, Denethor, were he not clearly verging on being a crazy person, Denethor deserved to know that Aragorn was coming to take the throne. Absolutely just going to bring that up. I mean, what he does with Bilbo at the end of episode six in the frame here is very similar to a Pippin probably best not mention Aragorn, you know? Right. Um, It's very similar. Uh, the motivation yeah. is very, the action is very similar. Let's hide this important thing. And the reason is very similar because like, he's probably not going to take it well and it's going to complicate things. So let's just right. skim by that if we can. Yeah, right. Absolutely. And it is information that that person really is kind of entitled to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, so anyway, well, that's the frame of this episode. And, um, well, you know, the other thing with drawing parallels between Gandalf and the Feanorians is that you can interpret it the other way and say the Feanorians are like Gandalf. Yes. So it's sort of not portraying them as the absolute bad guys. And so you yes. sort of see that, yes, they had some reasons for not bringing this up because they were interested in not creating more conflict. Yes, exactly. It does... I, I agree that 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 is a really good effect too. That it does kind of soften, especially in this episode where so much of the emphasis is on Thingol's perspective, right? Right. Um, and Thingol's sense of betrayal—not just about the kinslaying, which is horrible enough, um, but his sense of betrayal by Angrod and Finrod, right? Um, yeah, while, personally. You know, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. To, so to Rhiannon, as you say, to have that slightly softened by that other perspective, to say, you know, sometimes even you know, wise and prudent wizards like Gandalf kind of make the same. It's not necessarily a horrible call. Um, Right. What's really interesting about this, I'm sorry to cut you off. That's okay. The, the, um, one of the interesting things about this is that nobody in this situation is really wrong. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, like this conflict erupts. The, 
like Dane's not wrong for being upset about this. Mm-hmm. Thranduil's not wrong for con- being concerned for his personal safety. Yes. Gandalf's not wrong for keeping this information secret. And Bilbo's not wrong for revealing it. And right. Balin's not wrong for trying to rescue his king. <laughs> right. Right. Like nobody's really entirely in the wrong here. And yet these people almost come to blows over this. Right. Right. This, I would this say multi millennial old secret. Right. Of all of those things, the one the 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 weakest link in that whole chain, I think, is Dan's reaction. Yes. Um that well, it's was, over money. Right. It's over money. I mean, to some extent, it's just kind of a like Oh, those dwarves, you know, and their yeah. like obsession with, you know, with uh, holding grudges and things like that. Um, but uh, but that that one was definitely, I think, the weakest link of the lot. Yes. Um, right. That for him. And the one thing I would say, I guess, in, in its defense is that it was set up by. If we read and of course, we don't actually get the scene of Dan hearing it and thundering off. You right. know, we only. We only meet that after the fact. But um, if we assume that Dan's response was basically along the lines of, I knew it, right? I was right to suspect. I mean, I knew that they were untrustworthy. Haven't I been saying this? They've Um, been untrustworthy for thousands of years. Exactly, right? This only just shows that they've been, uh, you know, we've been saying that we don't think they're reliable allies. And now we have proof that they've never been, you know, um, Mm -hmm. history bears us out in our suspicions of them. Um, and amusingly, so, yeah. Thranduil probably doesn't even really know about doesn't this. Doesn't even know about it, right? I mean, and when it predates the King yeah. of the Elves, like you know, it's an old grudge, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, cool. All right. Well, having discussed the Framework Act, let's let's, let's uh, push ahead yeah. here into uh, into Act One. Um, okay, so Act One, we've got the Caliborn and Goadriel plot. Uh, right. Angrod and Finrod arriving, um, and uh, the beginning of the of the reveal to Thingol, and then of course we have the beginning of the trade relationship plot with Kurafin and Amras arriving right. to join right. Karanthir and Telkar still. Yeah, so this this is a little slower start than some of the other episodes um, because it's mostly character building with Caliborn and Galadriel yeah. and just kind of exploring how they're becoming more comfortable with each other. And um, this was the boat how, scene, wasn't it? Yes, this is the boat scene. Yeah, yeah. so they they, just, they discuss the two trees. They discuss uh, Cinderin and Quenya's languages. Yeah. They talk about the what if we had met in Valinor and then taken a ship to Middle Earth by ourselves? Ha ha ha! Oh boy, possibility. That's, oh, that's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, and then so then the boat. Where... I love that. By the way, again, like talk about talk about your deeply concealed Easter eggs, right? You know, I mean, oh, yeah. Man. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the the idea there is that Celeborn's being very protective of Galadriel. Yeah. As far as the, oh, so this is a boat, and right. I know you've got some trauma associated with boats. Like, is it are okay? Are we ready for boats yet? Yeah. yeah, are we ready for boats yet, essentially? Um, <laughs> and she's like, yeah, I mean, it's a boat. I, I, I'm i okay. But, you know, we, so we see him being uh, careful of her. Yeah. yeah. And, well, of and course, that's important. You know, one of the things that I love about that is... Again, 
you know, I whenever we're dealing with characters like Galadriel, right? I always have an eye towards like the long game that we're playing with with yeah. Lord of the Rings scenes down the road, right? So thinking about Galadriel and Celeborn on their little riverboat, you know, yes. uh, d- uh, later on is mm-hmm. yeah, cool. <laughs> Setting that up, you know, years and years in advance like that is re- so that again to do another one of those things, which again, to me is like the coolest payoff of the entire film film project, right? When you can take a scene, a familiar scene from the Lord of the Rings and invest it with an entirely new layer of meaning based on, you know, these other things that we have. So yeah, seeing Goadriel and Celeborn riding a boat down the river together, as we first saw them do there in Doriath, and especially with its associations of, her grief and their confidence and, you know, on all those yeah. things. Oh man. Like yeah. the, to think yeah. about the way that those things can get kind of recapitulated, uh, associated with the gifting moment. It's, it's so cool. So cool. Mm. Hey, can you guys remind me, is this the first episode where we have Mablung and Thingle playing their board game together? I think it's so. the second time. It's the second time. I don't remember the first one. Yeah, but it just became like a running thing. Like when we needed to have Thingle and Mabling in the same room together, we we said, "Well, I guess they could just be playing their game again," which you know they they kind of got this you know Kirk Spock chess game <laughs> right thing going on, which um, <laughs> yeah, which, which was fun. That's, um, that's fun. I liked it. Um, and basically, and what's interesting is that they're playing the scene in which they're playing that game is right w- is right at the scene where all the pieces in this episode are now in play. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, like the the games of, is actually about to start right at, in that scene. Right. The game's afoot. The game is yeah. absolutely afoot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I, that's it's I I I I, I like that that motif um uh so the what's hmm. okay so there's so much to talk about in the larger thingle plot here yeah let's separate out the Karanthir plot so mm-hmm. that we don't have to keep jumping back around to that um yeah. so act by act with the Karanthir plot Right. So first we have Kurofin and Amras arriving. Right. So we have more players on the on the field. And so yeah. Karanthir has established in the previous episode a like congenial interaction. A rapport. Yeah. 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 Um, but they haven't yet moved further to like trade agreements. Right. Yeah. Um, By the way, this is precisely what we do during the script discussions. We separate out the yeah. uh, the plot lines to to set them up to figure out where they're where they're going to be and when, so that we're able to then match everything up yeah. in the uh, tension curve of the of the episode. Yeah, that uh, makes sense. So, so then yeah, the timelines kind of make sense. No, go ahead. Oh, I was just saying, it also helps us have the timelines kind of make sense because the amount of time it would take Angrod to travel, like go get Finrod and then travel to Doriath would be about the time it takes to find yeah. the and the dwarves that he's found to get back to their castle Teleborn. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Good. Okay. So then, so in the second act, then Karanthir is trying to unsuccessfully demand, you know, unsuccessfully tries to demand that the dwarves treat him as a middleman. Um, and so if I'm remembering his, his demand is basically don't trade with the Sindar anymore. Just trade with me essentially. 
Right. Exactly. He's basically trying to completely corner the market on dwarf goods. Yeah. And the dwarves are like, mm, why would we do this? <laughs> right. What's in this for us? Yeah. Yeah. Um, right. Why should we trade with just you when we could trade with you and them? Yeah. Um, right. Okay. And then in Act 3, um, <laughs> Amros is like, Kurafin, he needs help. Like, this is not, this is not going well. Was it in Act <laughs> 2 when... Or was it in Act Three when Kurifin actually kind of defends Karin there and he's like, No, he's like kind of trying to do the dwarf thing, right? He's trying to he's trying to speak their language here. Um Right. So yeah, so Kurifin I think that was Act Two. Was yeah, it Act Two? Kurifin okay, yeah. Is able to read in the situation that Karathir is uniquely placed to be the guy who talks to the dwarves. Right. Right. Kur- like uh, Kurifin is such a shady dealer. <laughs> that the dwarves, like just like Norn, immediately picked up on Galadriel's am- ambition. Yes, the dwarves might immediately be able to see in Kurifin that this is a guy. Like you know that guy that when you're playing Monopoly with them, you know not to make any deals with that person. Like <laughs> right. regardless of how Luke, how beneficial to you they may seem, obviously he's got a like a he's got an advantage built into this deal so i'm just not going to make any deals with him whatsoever that's correct and he might realize that the dwarves are going to kind of pick up on that yeah so Carinthir, as the idiot is a uniquely useful tool in this regard yeah yeah i like that i mean i I liked the fact that we can see kurafin not exactly manipulating Carinthir here because Carinthir is doing it on his own steam, right. you know, but basically sort of being back and like, no, this is all working out in a sense appropriately. Right? Everything you know? is proceeding as I have. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yes. yes. I knew that Carinthir would, re- would react this way and that that would be advantageous. And yeah. Um, uh, so yeah. yeah, seeing his sort of criminal mastermind at work there was, was good. Um, <laughs> so, but so then, so basically, the culmination of this is just Kurifin telling Karanthir, "Okay, dude, um, new plan, toll, not monopoly, toll, right? Like right, it's right. you know, uh, and and then that you know becomes acceptable. Um, <clears throat> so, and using this as the way to introduce Angrist uh, seemed." to be a, a really good way to kill two birds with one stone, right? Both established mm. the, the, the wealth of current, the resources of Carinthir because of his, his enrichment uh, by the trade with the dwarves and also showing how Angrist gets into Kurufin's possession. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 It's the one item that Telkar made that shows up in this season. Um, yes. So we obviously wanted to highlight it and give it a meaningful role in the plot as well. And uh, Amy's Revenge, uh, Mike had come up with uh, some ideas on how we could use the admiration for the Dorvis craftsmanship on the part of the Noldor to uh-huh. have mutual respect. And so that Angris going to Kurafin should be part of that storyline. Right. Um, and it, it did, we didn't end up doing it the exact way that he had suggested, but we wanted to make sure it had that same meaning. Right, right. Um, also, we we put a little bit of a curse on it, um, <laughs> which will pay off. But um, 
Yeah. So it, which is a the totally idea. dwarvish thing to do. So yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But Karen, the- but you know, like Telcar is clearly trying to send Karen Thier a message, but Karen Thier just kind of like laughs it off and passes the curse on to Kurofin. Right. Instead. Cheerfully. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yes. Well, obliviously, yes. primarily, I guess. But yes. Yes. But like, kind of like, oh, I don't want this thing. Here you go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, cool. Okay. Um, so let's go back to the primary plot then. Um, mm-hmm. So we've got the arrival of Angrod and Finrod. Um, we don't get much with Angrod and Finrod in Act 1, right? It's They just get mostly, there. They get there and Finrod comments on the Girdle of Melian and they kind of update the audience on the... By the way, Angrod's wife got kidnapped, yeah. and he's upset about this. And he's upset about and this. And this is actually Angrod. He passed through the Girdle of Melian. Yes. Yeah. No, that was this, this. This one isn't Sauron in disguise. This is the real one. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's no so, sneaking. So yeah, it's to kind of reorient the audience to Angrod not being a prisoner and not being Sauron, but in fact being Angrod, who right. is trying to recruit help for the rescue of his wife. Yeah, and can I say, adding that weight to this scene, you know, that the scene when Thingol is going to send Angrod and Finrod packing, being the moment when Angrod has come to beg for help to rescue his imprisoned wife, uh, makes that much more powerful. Uh, It puts a little more pressure on it, right? Because, I mean, there's already a huge risk that Thingol is going to look like a jerk in this moment um and that kind of ratchets up the pressure under the likelihood of him looking like a jerk um uh but uh but but nevertheless it certainly does add more you know it this is not just a routine piece of diplomacy that goes bad right this is uh this is this is more personal and therefore uh now of course like the kinslaying is also personal so you know like that's that's all understandable but anyway okay so and the one thing I was uncertain about, and again, correct me if I'm misremembering here, uh, because I'm now coming up to the scenes I've only read once, or the, the, the episodes I've only read once, so I might remember them mm-hmm. imperfectly. Um, Kyrdan and Thingol's first conversation there in Act One, they don't really get to, like, you know, Kyrdan tells him what he knows, right? Burning of the ships, right? And then they don't they kind of end their scene by saying, like, Let's kind of talk about this and figure out what this must mean, right? Yes, they're talking about they have terrible suspicions, yes. but they want to discuss it and like make sure everybody's thinking the same thing. That right. they haven't really arrived at kinslaying yet, but they're all thinking, "Oh my gosh, what if this actually was a kinslaying?" Right. So right. that so the the reveal of the so so the the kind of Thingol figuring out Kierden and Thingol both figuring out that the kinslaying must have happened. Happens off stage, essentially. Exactly. So yes, that we exactly. don't get the or reveal until Thingol delivers his line. Right. Or it's not explicit that they knew that they completely figured it out. Yeah. Based on that, it's not it's not entirely clear until um Thingol goes and confronts Angrod and uh and Finrod. And now he knows. <laughs> right. And Thingol actually may not have figured it out at that point. He could be sort of testing Angrod and Finrod right. and seeing, well, if I say Kinsling, are they going to say, 
Great kinslaying? What? Yeah. We no, we didn't do a kinslaying. We did instead, or they to say, yeah, actually, we did a kinslaying, and we're really sorry. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know. So the the idea is that Kierden is being very cautious. He doesn't want to make a false accusation. Right. He's right. not sure how accurate his information is. He knows something bad happened. He's got some hard evidence and some suspicions, but he's afraid to go to Thingle and be like, hey, the Noldor are all guilty of killing the Teleri without proof. Like, he, he can't quite get himself to say that. Thingle can turn around and be like, hey, I got no problem saying that, <laughs> yeah. right. and confronts right. Angrod and Finrod with that and see what comes out. Right. Like, if he, if, he, if he says, you come to me right-handed, what you have to say for yourself, yeah. He assumes the truth will come out. So Thingle is taking a very different approach, um, a little bit more of the angry accusation approach than the cautious, I don't want to say too much, but there's something really bad here yeah. <laughs> that, that Kierden's doing. And there's there's something about, so like when Thingle gets word of Mytheros's words calling him, you know, the dark elf, right? Mm-hmm. Now Thingle obviously knows he's not a dark elf. Right. But in his mind, that those words came from the Noldor as a whole. Right. right. It wasn't just right. this one guy who said that or yeah. this particular group of guys. The Noldor said it. Yes. Yes. And so regardless of how um, cordial his relationship with the, the children of Finarfin has been up until this point – that's still in the back of his mind. Right. You know, and that's part of why he's so willing to antagonize them here on some kind of tenuous connections that are being, being made here. Yeah. Um, Can I, so, I mean, I've mentioned before that anytime you guys come to, you know, lines of dialogue straight from the book, um, it's always awesome. Like it's always awesome when that happens. Yeah. When all of a sudden, like lines from the book just get integrated uh, into the dialogue. This was the coolest payoff of book uh-huh. dialogue yet. Like this was yes. totally the best payoff. I agree. Um, because of course, those all of those lines are so good from the book. You know, I mean, like it's such a great exchange, um, and and it's such a long exchange, longer than any similar kind of quotation that you guys have done yet. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. in these, in these, in, 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 in season four. Um, so, but the way that the, that whole exchange works and fits, right. I mean, the best possible payoff, right. Is to get the line straight from the book, have them work perfectly. Well, not only have them match up like without visible seams between them and, mm-hmm. and, and, and the rest of the dialogue and the rest of the, you know, the episode that we see, but to have the earlier stuff really feel like it gives this extra weight, right? I, it just exactly, Nick, as you're saying, when Thingol stands up and delivers his, you know, I am surprised at you, son of a Arwen line, um, uh, it, it's, it's, perfect like we can see like knowing we've had episodes of setup which feels like it culminates in that line right? yeah um and that i so i mean again i i thought that the payoff was really spectacular in that scene i just loved how that came across and we know the audience knows that angrod and finrod are walking into a hornet's nest yes like because we know that kirden brought the news and yes. we already know that galadriel has been for lack of a better term arrested 
Yes. So we already know that Angrod and Finrod are walking into this blind trap. Um, and they have no idea what's about to go down. Yeah. Oh, quick note on that. I was... I, w- I didn't feel strongly about this, but the the arrest of Galadriel felt a little a little heavy handed. Well, I wasn't sure. I was I was I was I was kind of plus minus about the arrest of Galadriel, because um, clearly Thingol's going to have a strong reaction, and I liked the effect on Luthien. I mean, I liked the like the scene when Luthien yeah. comes and and is like, "Dad, the heck!" Right? Um, right. I liked that. Um, and of course, I love the irony of like that they're in the middle of Galadriel teaching uh, Luthien a Quenya song, right? And then it's like yeah, awkward. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I, I did, that that was all cool. But th- I guess again, the 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 question that I had is like, okay, is is that would Thingol do that, and why would he do that? Like, why would he like restrain her? You know, is there a mm-hmm. reason he would restrain? Because, I mean, yeah, he probably, I mean, I can understand how he would feel upset at her, right? But it's not like she needs to be restrained or kept under control, exactly. It's, well, not, it's not that well, kind of infraction. She is about to accuse her brothers of murder. Adding, sorry. No, I, I, my bad. Go. <laughs> okay. Well, I was going to say, maybe we could somehow parallel this to what we were talking about planning to change in episode six, where we have Thurn Wethel yeah. taking her own death or like thinking that the other Noldor or someone has gone after her. If we made that into a, she definitely ran away, and that's what Kieran thinks happened, is that she ran away with the help of the other Noldor, then he could tell that to Thingle, and Thingle could be like, let me make sure this doesn't happen to the Noldor that yeah. are currently like, in my kingdom. We have reason but to that suspect kind of, a big Noldor conspiracy. Yeah, I, That kind of gives the lie to like, this idea that that she like why would the Noldor help her at this point yeah. help throwing Wethel at this point yeah because it, it does go against her expressed concerns for her safety in the company of the Noldor well like the, the faking her own death thing fits better with what's already been said in that right. episode um, though I agree I mean I, I, I do agree with you Rhiannon that if we did it the other way it would set this up a little bit better but I guess I'm my, it seems to me maybe that, if the guards weren't so clueless, like would would that maybe help if they had like more, if they weren't like oh, I don't know your dad said like because that's kind of the way they they come across. Right. It maybe if they had more to say. So, for instance, instead of having Galadriel be arrested, mm-hmm. would it be better if she were being summoned, and then? being asked to wait to speak yes. to the king later. Yes. So like, and she so be watched. It, I mean, there can be armed guards there watching her the whole time. Right. right. So effectively nothing would change about what happens. Guards show up and be like, Galadriel, the king wants to talk to you. And right. then she's led away. They and take her to the room. Right. And right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's, I, so like I think, everything would play out. We'd have yeah. a reason for it. Now that doesn't sound like, Oh no, I just told to arrest you. Right. It, it, it was just like the act of essentially cuffing her and dragging her off. That seemed to me a little, unnecessary like yeah. one half step too far for Thingol to take right mm. um maybe yeah for for him to um the one thing it would the one thing that that would change is it would change Luthien's response her level of concern her level of concern um well maybe he but, summons okay. her though 
maybe Thingle summons the because I would think that one of his impulses would be like, oh yeah, hang on, like one of the Noldor is here in my house, and oh by the way, she's like now BFFs with my daughter. Maybe I need to pull my daughter aside and be like, um, we need to talk about this. We we could, but it would like they're gonna be asking questions as to why they're not going in together to see him together. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one thing that could happen. So Luthien could be suspicious of, of like if these, like if armed people show up to escort Galadriel to see, to, you know, to wait, to see Thingle, that's weird. Like right. this isn't the Noldor. The Noldor are walking around armed all the time. Right. The Sindar, have yes. armed soldiers but they're like that's not everybody is like that so like normally he would send like his major domo or whoever you, you yeah. know like yeah, yeah, that yeah. kind of person yeah. his seneschal or whatever to go pick her up you mean Kelleborn, right yes yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> um right you would send Kelleborn to cook yeah right yeah so um the very fact that she he sends armed guards could be enough to arouse Lucy suspicion on both their yeah. parts. Yeah. Like both of them could be saying like, all right, this is a little different. And Galadriel kind of knows the jig is up and Luthien is suspicious enough to go and now talk to her father. And right. she can still tell her, I, yeah. I'm going to go speak to my father because there's like a subtextual understanding between the two of them that it's weird. Yeah. Yeah, no, that I think would work. That would feel that would that would affect exactly. I mean, in fact, as you know, Marie, as you said, you'd barely have to change anything uh, to do that. But it softens it to make it feel less uh, threatening. Yeah, well, less forceful, less less uh, a little bit less over the top. Fisted. Yeah, yeah, more more delicate in the transition. Well, the other thing we need to remember that happens in this scene is that uh, Galadriel, as she's being led away by the guards, she walks past Celeborn. And so she like looks accusingly at Celeborn and Celeborn looks at her like, what is going on? And and so Galadriel thinks that Celeborn was the one who told him that's why she's being arrested. And Celeborn is like, what the heck is going on with Galadriel? Right. Right. And that could still happen. That can still happen. Exactly. Because I mean, exactly as Nick is saying, just the fact that she's walking in the company of armed guards, I mean, Kelborn is going to still be And Kelborn like, doesn't know anything about it. He doesn't also. know anything about it at all. Yeah. Yeah. Right. All right. Um so yeah, exactly. Like they they don't have to have like, you know, her arms pinioned behind her in order for that right. to look ominous, right? Um yeah. and for her to look accusing. At, and so but can I can I can I make a confession? Here's my confession. Um I didn't, and I, in in retrospect, I couldn't believe that I hadn't thought of this, but I had totally not thought of that angle. Like, uh, as soon as you guys brought up the, like, and of course, Galadriel assumes that, that it was Celeborn who told them. If I did think of that, I have already forgotten that I had thought of that because that came to me <laughs> as a surprise. I was like, yeah, yeah. man, of course <laughs> she's going to think that. That's really cool. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, because she didn't know that, like, a vampire was going to go and, like, Right. Throwing up vague hints at Kirdan for to start arousing suspicion. It, Occam's razor does kind of suggest that Kelborn spilled the beans. Right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, that was and, good. And then, um, and we also get the the nice scene between the three um, siblings mm-hmm. when they're in like the the green room under guard. While while Thingol is deciding their doom, essentially, right. Um, 
and uh, and when Luthien figures it finds out that Kelborn knew also right. right which I think we like we we came up with that on our own I don't think that you guys no no I I, I, I totally I'm pretty sure I totally forgot about that whole angle there <clears throat> yeah and so when when we get to the episode where Thingol finds out that Kelborn knew well his daughter also knew <laughs> right. and didn't tell him right 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 or or rather she knew that Kelleborn she knew, knew. She, she knew that he knew yeah yeah yes yeah, exactly um yeah yeah um by the way is there a a kind of is there a kind of like um there must be this kind of chart in scholarly circles that depicts when individuals in a story or in a group discover certain pieces of certain pieces of information there must be some kind of figure <laughs> that people use to describe that because that seems like the kind of thing that would exist right 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 yeah it does timeline yeah yeah but it's not like something which shows the relationships between people and and when exactly they find out a particular piece of information and I'm, I'm not entirely certain how you even depict that outside of three dimensions, which, and I can't be the first person to ever think about this because I've no. never the first person to think of anything. Yeah, no, I, I, it does sound like a thing that, that, that would exist. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I thought, Oh, well we skipped the Melian scene. So oh yeah, yeah, my, I liked the Melian scene. Um, here's, here's, here's the thing that I was most pleased by with this episode. Um I thought you guys succeeded remarkably well in doing what I think is the absolute hardest thing about this entire scene. And that is making Thingol not sound like a jerk and an idiot when he delivers the ban. Um, it would have been so easy for Thingol mm -hmm. to come off sounding reactionary, petty, um, uh, you know, out of touch, uh, uh, or just like out of control, you know, um, but the conversation with Melian in advance um, really demonstrated that like, when he delivers the ban, it sounds, it successfully sounds like a reasoned response, right? Like this is, um, he's not letting this go. You know, he is taking this very seriously, but he is restraining himself from doing like there's like a whole hierarchy of much more extreme reactions that he could have had that he was tempted to have but that he didn't he's restraining himself from and so the ban yeah. ends up actually sounding like a, a relatively diplomatic compromise essentially right right and i thought that that came off i thought that that came off really well i was in, in initially during the the when i was when i was first uh, uh, when I first got to the discussion between Thingol and Melian there, I was, um, you know, and Thingol was like, maybe we should just off them all. You know, I was like, well, okay, that's a little, maybe, I don't know. Um, but then again, the, the way that that set up the, the, the ban, I mean, the effect of that scene, again, I think some of that stuff could be softened a little bit. Um, uh, but still the, the overall effect, you know, the overall effect of, uh, of uh, the the payoff that that had when he delivered the ban, I thought was really good. One of the things 
that I really and I I have no recollection of of exactly whose idea this was, but one of the things I really like about that scene as I read like the synopsis of it is that Melian goes into Thingol's throne room and instead of sitting by his side, which is her proper place, mm-hmm. she stands before his throne. Mm-hmm. Presumably below him, because I assume that his throne has got to be like raised up raised, at, yeah. uh, at least yeah. a little bit so that people can see him if the room is crowded. Though he is... Well, he's the tallest the elf tall- ever. So. <laughs> That's true. That's true. But she's also, she's also a Maya, so... Like... But he's sitting down, you know, so... Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the idea of her like humbly looking up to him yeah. rather than you know really taking taking her rightful place i thought was really really interesting about that about the way that that plays out yeah yeah and i loved the little foreshadowing of the like Goadriel and Caliborn action in the Fellowship of the Ring, right when Melian is mm-hmm. like, "Ah, you are king, and your word is law," and like you're you are clearly <laughs> the big deal around here, right? Not me at all. <laughs> it, it felt very Fellowship of the Ring there, but uh, that was cool. Everybody knows who's in charge. <laughs> Everybody knows who's in charge here. Yeah, it's me, right? Yeah, clearly. Of course, clearly. of course, <laughs> of course. Yeah. Um, but yes, no, I, I, I did, I did like that as well. So I guess, I guess that there are some things, um, I, I don't think that the, their conversation needs major change. Again, I think I would mm-hmm. I'd probably tone it down so that, um, it sounds a little bit less extreme. Um, uh, the, I mean, yeah, he's, he's mad and he's, he's mad. kind of like, he's, he's kind of mouthing off a little bit. Yeah. Um, and privately. I wanted it to sound like scarily extreme. Yes. But like yeah. he, yes. He, that, that conversation where he's like, and we could just pull off all their heads. Right. Then right. he's supposed to sound like ridiculous. Well, it's also, it's also not... taking it too far. And, yeah. and so like the, the audience need to be like, well, Dingle is the one in power so like if he really wanted to do this he could do this so we should be afraid of him but also like this guy's really crazy i hope that melly can talk him down from this right the the the, the revision that i would suggest because i i i agree i really liked that effect because again that's exactly what made the ban seem so reasonable when he when he delivers that i mean i found myself like almost sighing in relief when thingle delivers the actual ban right um mm-hmm. but um but but the thing that I would suggest there, for it to, for him to sound less like crazy slasher guy and more like completely merciless judge, right? You know, so for him to say something like, you know, death they have earned by their deeds and death I might yeah. give them, you know, that that kind of that kind of tone, or like you know, or death right. I should give them, you know, for their betrayal. Um, and, Rather than off with their heads. Oh yeah, exactly. Better than like I'm just gonna pick out my sword and go cut off their heads right now. You know, like that was I was like, whoa, dude. Okay. Um. Um. Yeah. And and also he can't. He actually can't cut off all their heads. <laughs> like all being the Nolor because right. Like that's right. that's a seriously empty threat because he's there's no way he's pulling that off. Yeah. You, you know, like there's no way that. Thingle is going to invade the north of Beleriand and right. assault these castles right. that the Nolor have set up when he's and, outnumbered and out, you know, and outgunned and everything else. Yeah, there's yeah. no way that's going to happen. Yeah. So, like, confining the threat and making well, it a more ominous. 
making it a more ominous threat rather than a rather you know like that i think might be a little bit more effective and might scare the audience a little bit more right right than um than him being just out of control yeah 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 sorry Rhiannon, you were gonna you were gonna add what I was trying to convey with this scene was that he knows about the doom of Mandos. Mm-hmm. So he, he sort of interprets that as, well, Mandos said their doom. He didn't really enact it. So it's up to me as king of Balerion to actually go through and enforce this doom. Since yeah. the Valar haven't come over, it falls to me. And then that's why Melian has that line at the end where she's like, there's only one Valar in Balerion. That's the one whose will you'll be doing if you kill these people. That was a great line. I loved that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Maybe again, maybe the inclusion of of a phrase like to bring their doom down upon them. Like, you know, their doom has been spoken. You know, we, you know, perhaps I should bring their doom down. Something like that to, to, yeah. But a little less explicit, maybe. Yeah. It's still ominous and still threatening. And that's that. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, just to change the tone slightly. Threatening yeah. is definitely the the vibe that we should be getting from definitely. that. Like we should definitely feel like the the children of Fenarfarin are in danger. Just, just you know, like in the last episode, we should feel a little bit worried for Theringwethel's safety, which is going to feel kind of weird, especially when you find out what Sauron's doing. Uh, but you should definitely be concerned for the safety of the children of Fenarfarin in this episode. Yeah, M- much more so than Theringwethel. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Yes. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Um, but um, yeah, yeah. So I think it's just like the I would I would recommend his tone to be more and like to me I would be most concerned about their safety if it looked like the line Thingle was going to take was absolutely merciless judge, right? Yeah. Um, like, you know, I will like, you know, they, they have come to my court and I will visit justice upon them again. He's not going to say exactly that. But um, because, again, we can feel pretty confident, I think, that he's not just going to fetch a sword and, and start hacking. Right. Um, that I mean, somebody's likely to intercede before that happens. Um, but it's totally plausible. And he's well within his rights. To say like you know this this is the law but but you know you have you have uh, you are guilty um, I am the king uh, and I am going to pronounce your doom like he can totally and you do three that. are at least are in my power right exactly I can't reach them but I can reach you uh, and yeah. I mean so and that, there's a little of that going to, on as well to to, to 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 fear like that that that's a super plausible fear under the circumstances. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, and again, of course, this works as a if we think forward and not too far in the future, of course, with Baron's appearance before him in the hall, um, his response, he's angry, but he, he he responds not with intemperance, but with deviousness, right? With cold, merciless deviousness towards Baron. Um, so, again, he he's not even when he's angry, he's not of the like, I'm just going to whip out my sword and start slashing at folks kind of anger. Right. Um, his is like and a that's more... really not what I was trying to convey. I was trying to convey him as like he will be their judge, their jury and their executioner. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. So I think it's just kind of a slight tonal shift that I'm thinking of there to kind of emphasize the um, the the implacability of his wrath rather than the fire of his wrath. If you see what, if you see the the difference that I mean there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yes. Again, it, it's it's just it would just be a subtle a subtle shift of some of his lines, but um, right. But yeah, that's good. Okay. Well, we're pretty well out of time yeah. already we certainly shouldn't start yeah. another episode um yeah but although there, there we're is... taking longer here i think this has been great i I, th- I think i i feel really happy with the discussion we've had of episode six and seven today yeah there is one thing i wanted to bring out about the scene um where luthien kind of confronts oh, galadriel yeah. Yeah. and then and then Celeborn, you know rushes in and, and luthien now confronts him when he kind of tells us what we've been talking about ever since the kinslaying he when he tells the audience that yes the people who have committed murder are they suffer just as the people who they murdered suffer but they're gonna come back you know like they're they're going to be healed the people who committed the murder they have to live with that yeah yeah and I, even if they do get healed of their hurts in Mandos, they have to carry that around as long as Arda exists. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be a reiteration of what he says to Galadriel in Episode Five with the Marathadathad. Yeah, where he's like, "So, so you, you can't heal the fact that they've been killed, but you can heal your own guilt by like letting go of it." Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so. I did, you know, this is what, what I wanted to end with uh, here, fitting that it come at the end of the episode. Um, not going to lie, I totally teared up in that scene. Absolutely teared up in those, like, with, with, with the reveal to Goadriel that Celeborn, like, had kept her confidence and, and yeah. you know, and his speech there. I was totally, like, standing in line at the grocery store, like, sniffling, you know, and, like, trying to, like, you know, people were, like, sidling away from me and stuff. But it was, like, it was seriously, I was, uh, I was, I was, I found that that was the most moving scene of, I mean, the yeah. episode six, the reveal with Angrod was really powerful. Um, but I, that was, that was wonderful. That whole, that whole scene was really, yeah. was really powerful. Yeah. I, I really have been enjoying... Uh, as we find ways to bring in kind of because we've had a lot of really deep discussions about a lot of this stuff over the past yeah. couple of years now yeah. and to find ways to bring that directly into the show I, it has really I feel it's really been very satisfying. Yeah. Yeah. No, that was that was really good. I mean, it's because it do, people do need to remember the elvish context of this. Right. I mean, the, in one way of looking at it, the fact is murder is kind of a less of a big deal for the elves yeah. than it is for men. I mean, that's just kind of it's not that the act of murdering isn't bad, um, but like for for the victims, like it's not as bad yeah. for the victims as it is for men. Uh, so, it, yeah, it, no, it's it's important. And and it, it's also like it's it's not just about the elves, though. It's us, too, because like yeah. when the way that Gandalf talks about. Gollum, for yes. example, yes. mortal. Yeah, you know, but he like we pity Gollum he's the because he's right. suffering, right? Even though he's clearly a villain, and even he, though he's he, done horrible things, yeah, he and, and is doing horrible things again. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but we really feel the loss that 
you, you know, of someone who just can't get out of their own way. Yeah. You know, we, we like we all know people like that. And we all have been people like that. Yeah. Yeah. No, um, I mean, I really think that the 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 themes of this season, you know, which were so powerfully uh, coming out in this in these final scenes of this episode. Um, I mean, these are this is deep stuff. I mean, this is really this is really powerful stuff, I think. And not bad um, for a Valerian in its realms, huh? Not bad for who knew <laughs> Valerian in its realms would have such a powerful emotional impact, right? Uh, <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Um, very good. Well, with that, I think we're going to, so we're going to, uh, we're going to skip ahead a little bit because, uh, um, we're not going to have time for episodes eight and nine, and we've got a bunch of nine, uh, there, but, um, so in our next session is just going to be next week because um, uh, we're getting back on our regular schedule from before. So um, our 28th session will be next week. We'll continue uh, the scripts. I uh, hope to get through eight and nine, maybe ten if we're feeling frisky. So uh, so Rian and C, you'll, you'll, you'll get extra time to uh, to, to, to continue. Through, through the, you're still working on 13, is it? Yes, I just finished, like, right before we started the session, I just finished Act 1 for Episode 13. So I'm getting through that. I had some trouble this week. I had a debate and public speaking tournament this weekend, so I wasn't spending a lot of time on that because I did better in the tournament than I expected to. So I (laughs) thought I'd be writing during the final round of that tournament, but I was competing during the final round. So I had that. My laptop died. And I had to go get a new one. So like oh, I tried to keep writing script, but I was writing script by hand while I didn't have a laptop. So oh, then man. I had to type it all up. Is... And, and... So like I've had a bunch of stuff happening this week. I'm hoping that I'll have more time to get it done. And my Thanksgiving break from school is coming up. So hopefully I'll be able to finish up episode 13 while I'm on Thanksgiving break. That is really and on dedication. top of that, she's had she's had this really annoying guy coming along behind her. Looking like looking through her her work in like excruciating detail and giving her like pages of notes over it. Yes. So I'm sure that that can't have been uh, that that can't have made it any easier. No, please keep doing that. I absolutely <laughs> love that. But like, it, it, if you don't give me feedback, then I'm always like questioning myself, and I'm like, did I make a good decision on this? Should I go back and change this? And sometimes I do, and sometimes I don't. But like when I get that. Con- concrete feedback and i know what other people think of that that is the very best thing for writing <laughs> well it, at least you get a little window into what's going on in my head whenever i'm writing anything it's ex- it's just like that all the time mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. awesome well thank you guys for all the work that you've been doing these are really wonderful again i can't recommend strongly enough uh for folks to go in and take a look at these scripts uh this is uh some really excellent stuff which i would like to spotlight much more uh uh, as we uh, as we move forward, but anyway, so we will sign off for tonight. Uh, look forward to uh, uh, joining everybody again on November fourteenth, and uh, uh, thanks very much, everybody. So I will say, as always, thanks for listening. And Godspeed.